The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, March 22nd, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, lots of topics to discuss today. We got Bob Huggins was a guest analysis. Uh, the success of the Big 12 in the NCAA tournament and the rankings 15 to 8 of our top 50 West Virginia football players of the 21st century. But before we get into all that, we just want to remind all of you, follow us on our social media accounts. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown account. So make sure you search for both the Voice of Motown and the Voice of Motown podcast. Give us a follow, a like, and send the same messages with your thoughts, feedback, and ideas that you might want to hear us talk about. Um, also, if you're feeling generous, um, there is a link in our description of our uh, podcast to make a donation if you're feeling generous. So um, just keep that in mind when you're listening to us. Yeah, and look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. Lastly, we greatly encourage everybody listening, just reach out. Tell us what you like about the podcast. Tell us what you don't like. How can we improve? We're always trying to get better, so please reach out to us. So let's get into it. Bob Huggins was a guest analyst for some of the NCAA tournament games this weekend. Um, I saw on social media, some people seem to have strong thoughts and comments on his performance, whether they had positive thoughts or negative thoughts, they all seem to be pretty strong. Um, I'm not going to lie, Brandon and myself, we missed a lot of it live because we were at the games in Pittsburgh this weekend. So um, we had to catch most of it on just online and seeing clips here and there. But from what I saw, uh, Coach Huggins, you know, he was just his normal self same energy and tone that you normally hear in conferences. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think Mountaineer fans were really surprised how he did. Um, that's just how we're used to hearing him. Plus, he had a couple funny moments that went viral. So, I mean, I, I thought his performance was okay. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's just Huggins. I mean, he's not really built for the desk. He's very kind of straight to the point. He's not good with, like, the filler and – you know, all that sort of jargon, um, even watching his post game shows can be kind of painful sometimes because, you know, he's very kind of well thought out with his, um, responses and, you know, just kind of to the point likes to tell stories, likes to drag things on to other directions and sometimes not even answer the question. So, um, you know, and he's not really one for hot takes either. So it's, he's just not built for modern, uh, sports journalism. Um, and that's fine because, you know, he's a great coach and, after he retires, he's not going to have to be on a desk somewhere. He can be on a beach somewhere or sitting in his house in Morgantown, just enjoying basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. I, I don't think, you know, he would be one to have a job like that long-term. I think what they're doing now is perfect. You just see him pop up every now and then um, discuss other teams, other coaches that you normally wouldn't hear him talk about. Um, but other than that, no, I don't see him being like some high energy ESPN hot take guy. So um, I thought it was fine. I think some people were being a little too critical, but he even had some jokes about Doug Sermons, uh, 
So, I mean, it was cool seeing him out there. I will say one thing, and this goes for a lot of those post-game or halftime shows. There's just too many people at the desk. I mean, they had, um, I think it was Parker was on the desk, Chapman, Seth Davis, and there was even a few more, plus hugs on top of it. It's hard to get that many people's opinion on one topic. I don't know. That's just how I feel about watching those shows. Yeah, definitely too many voices. I think four is about the right number, and once you get over that, it becomes a little congested. Yeah, yeah, everyone's just trying to get a word in at that point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we don't have a ton of opinions on that. We just wanted to to mention it and uh, reach out to us, tell us how you felt and how he did on the desk. One other thing we wanted to discuss before we get into our rankings was um, just how successful the Big 12 has been in the NCAA tournament so far. They had six of their 10 teams make the tournament and and really only nine were eligible because of Oklahoma State. And they're all performing pretty well. They have an overall record of nine and three after the first two rounds and three teams remain. We still have Texas Tech, Kansas and Iowa State left. Um, but even the teams who lost TCU finished in the middle of the Big 12 this year and they were just seconds away from knocking off number one Arizona and, you know, almost reached the Sweet 16. Texas lost a hard-fought game to Purdue. Really, the only Big 12 team who I think, you know, was upset and kind of had a disappointing t- tournament would be number one seed uh, Baylor, who lost to North Carolina in overtime. And the only reason, I mean, it was in overtime. The only reason it's so disappointing is because they they were such a higher seed than UNC. Yeah, and it was a game, I think, too, that, it could have looked a lot worse for Baylor because Manic got ejected. Um, I think it was in the first half, and he was their leading scorer um, for a questionable flagrant two. And that's when I think at that point, um, Baylor was down 25, and Baylor really came back strong in the second half, but it was because North Carolina was out there without their guy. So that could have looked a lot worse. Um, I've been really impressed with the Big 12, though. I mean, I think it goes to show that you know, I think you could make an argument that Oklahoma really should have been in when they got snubbed. Um, and one thing that, you know, I, I told, you know, Tyler and a, a couple of uh, other of our uh, people who talk basketball all the time is, you know, if Oscar Shibway was on the Mountaineers this year, I think the Mountaineers should have been a tournament team and they probably would have made it out of the first round, unlike Kentucky did. Now, some of that was, you know, said kind of out of spite, but I, I think it's true just because of the way that, you know, how tough the conference was. And, you know, looking at the bids that we got, you know, the Big 12 got six out of nine teams, and that, that's pretty good. But I think even if you look at, like, the Big 10, who got, I think, nine teams, um, that seems a little ridiculous when teams like um, Oklahoma were snubbed and not even really given a second thought because Oklahoma, and not to sound like a Oklahoma stand here, but they were top 30 in, like, all the advanced metrics rankings. And, they, they played a pretty good schedule, obviously, being in the Big 12. So, um, you know, I think some of the experts and the, the the rankings committee, the selection committee, maybe underrated some of the Big 12 teams because of the records. I mean, we beat up on each other all season long, and it made our records look not as pretty as some of the Big 10 and ACC teams who really aren't that great. And you can kind of see that through the tournament. I mean, I think what Michigan and Purdue are the only two teams left from the Big 10, unless I'm missing someone. Um, and yeah, I mean, the big 12 is still riding strong. So, um, the ways we got beat up, it doesn't make it any better, but it kind of makes sense 
given how high level the competition is this year in the Big 12. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, credit where credit is due. The ACC is performing pretty well. Um, also, you know, they have five teams with a combined eight and two record in the first two rounds, and they have three teams left, Duke, Miami, and North Carolina. So, um, I, I don't know. I think the Big 12 is the best basketball conference, but if someone wanted to argue ACC, I would certainly say, you know, you have an argument there. But other than that, I think they are the clear-cut favorites, and not just because of how well they're performing this year, but even the past several years. You know, I feel like the Big 12 has really shown up in these tournaments and proven that, uh, you know, this Big 12 is elite when it comes to basketball. Yeah. And uh, not to kind of go off script, but is there any team that you're um, rooting for, um, whether it be a Big 12 team or anyone else that's in the field? That's a good question. Uh, coming into the tournament, I would I would have said nobody, really. I'm just sitting back and watching. But after watching those games live up in Pittsburgh, I really like Houston. They are a fun team to watch. And, you know, the deeper they get into the tournament, I you know, the more I would be tuning in because I enjoy watching them. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing just because, I mean, it looks like, you know, a team full of five guys who play Bob Huggins style basketball, except with a more fluid offense. And it's really exciting. I mean, that that first game, they were on fire. They were just shooting the lights out. Um, looks like they couldn't miss against UAB. And then the second game it was a little bit more of a drag, but against Illinois, but they still figured out a way to, you know, pull ahead there at the end. They're tough defensively um, and offensively. You know, they have talent at from five guys who can score from a variety of areas um, remind me of a little bit of those old Mountaineer teams where we had five guys who could defend and shoot. Um, so, you know, just kind of idealistically thinking maybe the Mountaineers can get there someday, um, hopefully soon. And it's a style of play that I can see Bob Huggins emulating. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they are just fantastic in transition, how quick they get the ball up the court and, you know, they get a lot of points that way. Um, but yeah, if you guys haven't checked out Houston yet, I would definitely make a point to tune into their next game because they're just a fun team to watch. Um, yeah, and that's really all we got for basketball guys. So we're going to get into our top 50 list. We're going to do rankings 15 to eight today for the top 50 football players at West Virginia in the 21st century. So coming in at number 15, we got Noel Devine. Noel Devine played at West Virginia from 2007 to 2010, and Noel was a star before he even arrived at Morgantown due to having one of the best highlight reels coming out of high school, you know, probably in the past 20 years. He's definitely up there. Um, His 4,315 total rushing yards is the third best in school history, and his 29 rushing touchdowns is the sixth best. Noel put up some impressive numbers while he was at West Virginia, and they could have been even better. He only played in the Rich Rodriguez offense for one season because, as you all remember, Rich Rod left shortly after Noel being there. Um, So I imagine his numbers may have been even more impressive in that dynamic offense. But regardless, you know, after reaching over 1,000 rushing yards his sophomore and junior years, a string of injuries prevented him from reaching 1,000 his senior season, coming up just 66 yards short of 1,000 that year. But despite his disappointing senior year, Noel Devine finished his career second all-time in all-purpose yards, trailing only Tavon Austin. So without a doubt, 
He is one of the best and most exciting running backs to ever play at WVU. Oh, for sure. And, um, you know, he, he was a weapon out of the backfield too. I mean, um, you know, you don't really think of Noel as being kind of a dual threat guy. I don't think, you know, in West Virginia, we've really used a back who's, you know, used a lot in the past game, but surprisingly uh, from the research I did, he is the all time running back leader in receptions at WVU and he is third in yards all time. So <coughs> pretty impressive. Um, his second season, his junior year was actually his best year while at WVU. And that's kind of where he really had a breakout 1,465 yards, 13 touchdowns, number two rusher in the conference, 17th nationally. Um, I believe he actually got Heisman hype a little bit at some point in time during that season. And, you know, he was, he was not short of accolades. He was second team, all big East in 2008, first team, all big East 2009. He was a semifinalist for the Maxwell award award in 2009 and the Gator bowl bowl MVP in 2009. Um, He was such a dynamic player to watch. Um, One of those smaller guys, he was only five, seven, about 180 pounds, if that, but he was someone who was so quick in space, uh, probably some of the best short area quickness out of any of the backs potentially in WVU history. Um, he could really find a seam. He was so quick at making cuts, making guys miss. Um, and once he kind of got into the open field, he found ways to make people miss even more and turn off big gains. Um, it did seem like at times that he didn't really have that super high end top speed because he would seem to kind of have a habit of getting tackled inside the five quite often. But um, nonetheless, he was still really good at breaking off big plays and, you know, not really letting his size hold him down at all. He was just dynamic. That's the one word that I would use to describe him. Yeah, 100%. And uh, you're right. You know, he did seem to get caught uh, around the 10 or 5 a lot. And that's why some years, you know, his touchdowns weren't very high. But, um, you know, without a doubt, one of the most exciting players um, at West Virginia in the past 20 years. Um, Yeah, injuries seem to really hinder his stats. He would have really been higher up on these all-time you know, touchdowns, yards list, if he would have stayed healthy that senior year, but he just kept having nagging injuries um, that seemed to even hurt him when it came to draft time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the injuries, his size, um, you know, the style of play back then too in the NFL, you know, you think the running backs in NFL have changed quite a bit. Um, You know, teams that run the spread more don't mind having those smaller backs. Look at someone like uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire, who is, stocky he's probably about 200 pounds but he's still only like 5'8 um he could catch he could run the ball um not really a power back so he can't be really your three down guy but he's someone who can really help you if you like to pass the ball a lot and you know maybe if noel came out 10 years later he would have a different sort of role um because i mean that short area quickness is kind of what teams look at anymore it's not really that long-term speed look at someone like Le'Veon bell who was really quick in space patient runner um, explosive in short, short areas. I think, you know, Noel was that type of guy. And, you know, I, I think Noel too also kind of harkens back to how good and how great the Rich Rod era could have been had he stayed. Because if you look at Noel, you know, we talk about how he was like a YouTube superstar for his highlights. He was also highly ranked by these recruiting agencies. He was ranked as the number three rated running back and the number sixth overall prospect in the 2007 recruiting class, uh, I believe he's the highest rated recruit ever to come to WVU. 
And, you know, he came after Jason Gwaltney, who was another running back who flamed out, who was another five-star guy. And those were the type of guys that um, Rod was starting to bring in at WVU before he bolted. Um, it just kind of makes you wonder what if, if he, you know, with all the the reputation he was gaining for this dynamic offense for, you know, guys putting up stats and getting guys like Noel coming in. And like you said, getting a couple more years with Noel, obviously he'd probably still be winning. Um, what could WVU be today if he was still around doing what he's doing? I mean, could we be in the same sentence as Clemson? Could we be the next Clemson? Um, a lot of big what ifs. And I think it all begins with Noel because of how big he was coming out of high school and how big he was here. Yeah, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, it's not to say his sophomore and junior stats weren't great. They really were. Um, but, you know, everyone loves Coach Stu. He was an awesome coach and a, a great man. But um, Dan Molin, his offensive coordinator, um, just ugh. I think his first name was Dan. I might be mixing him up now with the SEC coach. But Mullen was his the offensive coordinator. And I remember they would just sit on lead sometimes. And, and, you know, with the Rich Rod offense, they would always just put up these awesome stats. Even if they had big leads, they'd still be gashing them for big gains. And so um, I always think about that with Noel's prime years that, you know, if we were still in that um, spread offense, that it might have been even better for him. But uh, some of his big plays, you know, obviously the Fiesta Bowl big runs come into mind. But the one that I always remember for some reason is it was just a you know typical game against Syracuse at home. And WVU was only up a couple points and it was late in the fourth and Noel ripped off. I mean, it was probably close to a 90 yard, 80 yard. I forget exactly what it was. Run just took it to the house and clinched the game for us. And uh, I don't know why that play just always stuck out to me because it was just typical Noel Divine. You just keep feeding them, and eventually he's just going to bust one off and take it to the house. Yeah, I had a different one, actually. Um, mine was actually from his freshman year because I thought the way that Rod used him as kind of a spell for Slayton because Slayton was banged up a lot that year, so he did get some, he did get some run, um, was a play against Maryland. It wasn't one of his t- big touchdown runs, but it was, you know, just kind of a, a run-of-the-mill inside zone play that Rod ran all the time where um, Noel took the handoff, went inside, juked out one defender, juked out another defender was running to running across the field. The defender grabs him by the face mask, spins him around. Noel spins, breaks out of the tackle and goes for like another five yards and runs out of bounds. It only ended up being a 15 yard play, but I think that encapsulates Noel to a T because of how shifty he was, how great his balance was. His balance was incredible. Um, and, you know, just how hard he was to bring down despite being that small. Oh, yeah. And his stats were ridiculous that game. I remember that was like his breaking out party. He only had like maybe five handoffs and they were for, I don't know, like somewhere 130? around 100 yards. Yeah. yeah, I think it was like 130 and a touchdown or I think two touchdowns, actually. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but that's all I got for Noel. You got anything else? Um, no, the only last thing that I have to note is that, uh, you know, he didn't really play pro afterwards. Um, he did play in the Canadian Football League for a few years, and now he um, runs a, um, I think it's called like a speed training facility down in Florida where he helps athletes work on their speed, which makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
There you go. All right, guys. Uh, coming in at number 14, we got Razul Douglas. Douglas started his career at Nassau Community College before transferring to WVU. He played at West Virginia from 2015 to 2016 and made a significant impact in that short amount of time. Uh, Douglas only started his senior season, but he totaled nine interceptions in his career. His eight interceptions during his senior year is the second most in school history for one season. He is only behind Aaron Beasley's 10. Those eight interceptions tied for the most in the nation during the 2016 season and helped Douglas earn the first team all Big 12. NFL scouts liked what they saw, and Russell Douglas was selected in the third round by the Philadelphia Eagles. You can still catch Douglas in the NFL. He just recently signed a three-year deal with the Green Bay Packers. So shout out to Razul Douglas. Yeah, I, I loved Razul Douglas. Um, he was probably my favorite defender of the 2010s. Um, he was just so exciting to watch. I mean, the interceptions, not like those interceptions that he had, they weren't easy interceptions. It was insane, the plays that he was making on the ball. He was jumping up for balls, playing them in the air like a receiver would. And he was physical, too. He was He wasn't one of those... You know, cornerbacks are just fast or long or something like that. He was physical, 6'2", about 200 pounds. Um, he would body up guys at the line of scrimmage. He was a great press corner. He could take guys one-on-one all the time. And, you know, I, I know I've said this before in previous podcasts, but, you know, I think the most valuable and the hardest thing to get whenever you have a defense is a true shutdown, don't throw it that way type guy. And I think Russell Douglas was that guy because you, in college you don't have guys who are that big at 6'2", playing corner, that are bodying you up and then can also go up and play the ball that way. Um, he was just an absolute nightmare for opposing quarterbacks because, you know, at that time, 2015, 2016, the defenses were okay, but they still weren't very good. So teams weren't afraid to throw on WVU, and they were still targeting Douglas a little, but he made him pay for it, and I loved watching him play. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, too, about what you said, how physical he was and I think that's why his game translated so well to the NFL um because I mean he's got 10 career interceptions in the NFL just five alone last year with Green Bay so um yeah that physicality really translates well to the NFL and you're right I mean he was a shutdown corner really like the last big big dominant one that I can remember at WVU um, and he even won a Super Bowl with Philly in his rookie year. So, I mean, he just seems to have success wherever he goes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, for, for a memorable, mo- memorable moment that I had for him, I actually had a couple because, um, like I said, the, the picks that he made were just so incredible. Um, the first one I had was a pick against Texas where basically it looked like the receiver caught the ball and he just literally ripped it out of his hands and took it um, again with his physicality and his want for the ball. Um, the second one was a, a pass from uh, Baker Mayfield going across the middle. Um, he tries to hit, looks just like a drag route. Douglas is there. He tips it in the air, knocks the receiver over, and then runs underneath of it and intercepts it. I mean, it's just crazy things like that that just goes to show how impressive how, how impressive he was, how great he was. And you know, you can definitely say he, he's probably just from that one season alone, he's probably a top five defensive back in WVU history. I mean, let alone just being on this list, 
you know, you can put him up with some of the all-time greats. Um, and it's crazy that coming out of high school, this guy didn't had to go to junior college, you know, and then ends up going to WVU and only starting for one year. So I think that goes to show his work ethic and why, you know, despite a little bit of a slower start in the NFL, he's made such a nice niche out and just made a $21 million payday, payday with the Packers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you mentioned these junior college guys, that's what keeps popping up as we keep doing this list. It's just so many of them are, um, you know, guys who only played at WVU for two or three years because Dana was able to go out and find those guys who were just hungry and performing well at small community or junior colleges. Yeah. And speaking of next on of our list is another one of our really, really great junior college transfers, Kevin White. So I'll let you, uh, Talk him in. Yeah, number 13, Kevin White attended Lackawanna College for two years before transferring to West Virginia. He played at WVU from 2013 to 2014. And Kevin, I mean, he was a nice contributor in his first season, totaling over 500 yards and five touchdowns. But it was his senior year that made Kevin White a Mountaineer legend. In 2014, Kevin caught 109 passes for 1,447 yards and 10 touchdowns. Um, The 109 catches is third most in school history, and the 1,447 yards is second most in school history for a single season. He earned first team All-Big 12 and second team All-American that year. All of this led to Kevin being drafted seventh overall by the Chicago Bears. Unfortunately, several injuries have severely impacted his NFL career, but uh, he's still in the league. So who knows? Maybe there's still time to turn it around and have one or two big seasons because he clearly has the talent to do so. Yeah. And that that senior year was special. Um, He only had three games where he had less than six receptions out of his entire senior year, which is insane. Um, he was third in the NCAA in receptions, sixth in receiving yards in that whole NCAA. Um, he was just a force. And, you know, the thing about Kevin that I always remember is that he was just such a a rare athlete. You know, he was 6'3", 6'4". He was fast. He was strong. He had insane hands. Um, he just seemed unguardable. I mean, uh, you know, watching the rewatching the highlights today – you know, the way that he would just take a bubble screen and then turn up field and then he would at least break a tackle or two. Um, and then two plays later, he would run past someone on the sideline and catch it over their head. Um, it's just unreal. And it's really a shame that he never really made an impact in the NFL because he really had all the intangibles. Um, you know, he didn't really seem to have too many health problems while he was at here at WVU. Um, and it's a real shame that he ran into those in the NFL because he had the prototypical build, size, speed, everything to be a really, really good NFL wide receiver. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've never, I can't think of a guy who's better at the high point. of You could just throw the ball up to him and he would jump higher and reach higher than anyone else on the field and get it. And we've even seen a couple of those plays in the NFL. So I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, if he didn't run into a lot of those early injuries, he probably would have been a full-time starter on, at least, um, you know, one of those 32 NFL teams because he's just so talented and physical. Um, But his numbers are just ridiculous that final year. He had 16 catches versus Texas 
which is a school record. And I don't know if that will even be broken anytime soon. 16 catches in one game. That's just insane. Um, but who knows? We'll see. Um, but yeah, I wish we just had them longer than that. You know, it was two seasons, but really it just felt like one because he's just so dominant. And it's not like he was putting those numbers up against bad teams. We played Alabama that year, and he had a nice game even against them. So once again, it just proves he's talented enough. He had what it took to compete against high-level competition. Yeah, and I think the one word I would use to describe him is uh, Mossed, like Randy <laughs> Moss, because he he was that he was making those type of plays in college, um, and that's kind of what. You know, again, what, what kind of made the, his NFL career disappointing. And, you know, to kind of put in perspective for those who may not remember his combine performance, it, it was insane. He ran a 4.36, and remind you, he's six foot three, about 215 pounds. He had a 36-inch vertical jump, and he, he did 23 bench press reps, um, which is insane for a wide receiver. Um, and, and, you know, kind of all of that kind of culminated – I think you can kind of see in the the memorable moment that I chose because there's so many good ones where he was jumping over guys. But my favorite was the one-handed catch against Baylor where he was being held and there was a pass interference penalty on the play too. Um, He just reached out while the Baylor defender was grabbing his arm, caught it with one hand in the end zone. Um, And it just, you know, strength, speed, matchup nightmare all in one moment. And I think that encapsulates Kevin White. Yeah, 100%. If I remember correctly, that was a big win. Wasn't Baylor ranked pretty high coming into Morgantown that game? I don't remember. Maybe. I forget what year that was. Um, what, what, what year for Baylor that was. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it was because I remember being at that game. But, yeah, he is just so talented. Um, but, yeah, we're lucky that we had him here in the couple years that we did because, you know, he really set the tone for – couple big name wide receivers that came after absolutely all right coming in at number 12 we got pat mcafee pat was a kicker slash punter at west virginia from 2005 to 2008 he's beloved by mountaineer fans for his unique personality but he was also an amazing player pat made 210 extra points and 58 field goals in his career he was a four-year starter at kicker but he was also the starting punter for three years as well. He averaged over 43 yards per punt in his career on 126 punts. Pat holds the record for points in a career with 384, and he was part of perhaps the most dynamic offense ever at West Virginia. For you know any football fan who appreciates special teams, they know Pat McAfee was a big contributor in those games, kicking, punting. Um, He went on to have an excellent pro career as well with the Indianapolis Colts, and he is now one of the biggest sports talk personalities in the country. So Pat McAfee was a special football player, but his personality, his enthusiasm, it's made him successful at really just everything he's pursued, even after his playing days. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, he was just Mr. Reliable when it came to the kickers kicking for the most part. I mean, he only missed two extra points through his four-year career as a kicker. That's a 99.1% um, conversion rate. Um, he had a 73% accuracy over his career with a long of 52. Um, and his best year was his senior year where he converted 85% of his vehicles, 17 of 20, 
with a long of 52, while also posting a career best punting average of 44.7, um, while also making 100% of his extra points. And he also did kickoffs too. So um, he wasn't one of those kickers who was sitting on the sideline board very often. Um, he led the Big East twice in extra points made and most extra points. And he also has the most extra points makes in Big East history. He has the second most career points in Big East history. He has the best punting average in Big East history. Um, the third most field goals made in, Big, in West Virginia history. Um, he has two seasons ranked in the seventh for, for as the seventh most makes at West Virginia in a single season for field goals. Um, the sixth best single season field goal percentage and the ninth best field goal percentage for a career at WVU. Um, and he did get some accolades. He was the second team all big East in 2017. He was a Lou Groza semifinalist in 2017, um, which is for kicker and the finalist for the Ray guy award in 2018, which is for bunners. Um, and he was also drafted, which is kind of rare anymore for, for special teams player. He was drafted in the seventh round um, by the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, if you have time, it's always a funny story to hear how he um, conned the Colts into getting that uh, getting drafted there um, by claiming that he had experience holding for kickers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. The guy's hilarious. I mean, even, and I mean, he's authentic too, because there's never an interview that you see where he's not acting like that. So that tells me, I mean, that's just him. That's his personality 24 hours a day. Um, but yeah, I mean, they called him up they're like, Hey, can you hold for a kicker? He said, yes, I can, sir. Never held for a kicker in his life because he was always the kicker. So, um, just hilarious. For not, you know, researching the player they're about to draft. They're like, Hey, he kicked (laughs) WWE for four years. Yeah. And I mean, he was an incredible punter in the NFL as well. Um, I believe made an all pro team, two, Mm -hmm. two pro bowls. And, I mean, if you guys aren't old enough to remember his days at West Virginia, he did, He wasn't a conventional punter. He was like a rollout rugby-style punter, and he learned how to do the traditional catch it, take a couple steps, and punt in the NFL. And you could argue that during his time period in the NFL, there was no one better at it than him. So, I mean, the guy's just incredible. He's he just seems to be successful at no matter what he chooses to do. Oh yeah. And uh, he, uh, you know, for his career in the NFL, he has a 46.4 yards per punt, which is pretty darn good. And he also did kickoff since uh, Vinatieri was there for so long and his leg was kind of gone outside of field goals. Um, and he kicked 53% of his kickoffs for touchbacks in the NFL, which is pretty awesome. And we know how that valuable that is at WVU because we really didn't do it at all last year. Um, and we saw that there was times where it really can bite you in the butt. And, you know, I think it's, you know, seasons like last year where we had Casey Legg, who was really reliable, um, you know, and 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 um, I'm forgetting his name now, <laughs> the punter, um, you know, who, who was Sumter, who was good at times and other times kind of down and then not really having a great kickoff guy, you know, having it all rolled into one was such a blessing because, you know, you always knew when Pat came out, except for a couple moments that we won't talk about. Um, he was going to go out there and do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
Um, yeah, and anyone who's a wrestling fan, apparently he makes a lot of appearances on WWE as well. So his face is just everywhere. It was on ESPN a few years ago. He's got his own show. He's on wrestling. The guy's just everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do have a, a memorable moment for him as well. Um, WVU ended up losing this game, but he made a 52-yard field goal. Um, I believe it was as Ty was expiring to tie Cincinnati in 2008 and send the game to overtime. Um, that was actually a pr- pretty big comeback for WVU. I think we were down a couple scores late. Um, we came back, Pat nailed a 52-yard field goal, which tied his career long. Um, and even he says that was probably his most memorable experience at Mountaineer Field. Yeah, and right before that, he also uh, kicked an onside kick that WVU recovered too. So he was doing it all that game. Yeah, I was also thinking about throwing that one in. Um, I think it was the the Louisville game where we came back from 17 down, um, the Slayton game, um, where he kicked an onside kick that led us down to the game-winning drive as well. So, I mean, again, we didn't even talk about his onside kicking ability, but we just mentioned two times right there where he converted. And I don't remember the last time WVU successfully converted an onside kick. So, I mean, he, he's hands down the best kicker slash punter at WVU in the 21st century. Um, you could probably say the best kicker of all time at WVU. Um, maybe punter would be a stretch because Todd Sauerbrunn was here in the 90s, um, but that would really only be the competition there. Um, as far as special teams players go, I think you could probably say that Pat McAfee is the most valuable special teams player that we've had at WVU. Yeah, couldn't agree more with you. All right, let's move on to number 11. We got David Sills. David Sills played at West Virginia in 2015, 2017, and 2018. And as all WVU fans know, David had a very unique college career. He was offered a verbal scholarship by USC when he was in the seventh grade. But after Lane Kiffin was fired, he decided to commit to West Virginia as a quarterback. After playing wide receiver for a few games during his freshman year, he decided to transfer to El Camino Community College to play quarterback. He transferred back to West Virginia after just one season and became a touchdown scoring machine. In his three seasons at WVU, David recorded over 2,000 receiving yards and 35 touchdowns, which is the second most all time at West Virginia. He led the nation in touchdown receptions his junior year with 18, and that ranks second for an individual season at WVU. He holds the third-place record with 15 touchdown receptions his senior year, and all of this earned Sills the first and second team All-American honors while he was here at West Virginia. So big shout-out to the touchdown machine, David Sills. Yeah, and, and like you said about his kind of origin story where, you know, he transferred out because he wanted to play quarterback. The reason that he transferred out is because he lost the starting job to Skylar Howard that year, and then he knew that uh, Will Greer was coming in the next year. Um, so he transferred out, and I, I think Dana kept on him saying, hey, you could be really special at wide receiver. You should really consider coming back. And after that JUCO year, he came back, and like you said, he kind of just set the world on fire. Um, I think – you know, that fade route that him and Greer, Will Greer had in the end zone, I think that was probably one of the most reliable slash gimme plays 
in WVU history because it seemed like they connected on that every time they tried it. It was just insane with his, you know, reach, his height, his length, his positioning. He was just tremendous at it. And then combine that with Will Greer and his touch on those passes and his placement. Um, you could see why he scored 35 touchdowns. Um, he was just really special at figuring out ways to score in those ways. And I think, you know, his route running really played off of itself really well. I mean, if you look at what he did, it was a lot of, you know, those fade routes, a lot of post routes, a lot of slants, and those kind of build off each other. It's all just kind of the way that you break off the line and you can fool the defenders. And while he was fast for his size, I think he ran like a four, five, five at the combine. Um, he wasn't really a burner. He was more of a smart wide receiver with really good hands, um, good, you know, intelligence out there. Um, and yeah, he, he was fantastic. Um, he also was a finalist for the Blitnikoff award, which is best wide receiver in 2017. Um, and, you know, I think during that two year period of 2017, 2018, you could say he was probably the best touchdown catching wide receiver in the country. Yeah, 100%. And his junior and senior year, he barely missed 1,000 yards. But if you guys remember, uh, his junior year, Will Greer got hurt and missed the last few games. So that probably would have easily got him over 1,000. And his senior year, Will Greer didn't participate in the bowl game. And, you know, once again, he probably would have easily eclipsed 1,000 yards that year because he had those two bowl games. He had Chris Chuganoff and Jack Allison as his bowl QBs. And, you know, no disrespect to them, but uh, they they weren't really good enough to play a Division One level, it didn't seem like. So, um, you know, don't knock him for missing 1,000 yards just barely. If just one little thing changed, he probably would have had back-to-back 1,000 yards. Um, but surprisingly, he went undrafted in the NFL, you know, Normally, guys who have a knack for the end zone get selected, even if it's a later round. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of NFL scouts passed on him. And uh, credit to him. He's been hanging around. I mean, he's still in the league. He's been hanging around mainly the New York Giants. They they have him on their practice squad on and off. But I saw he just recently signed with them. So who knows? Maybe this is the year he cracks the lineup and uh, gets to play in a few games. Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, to to go back to, you know, the yardage thing, you know, I, I don't think it's really that, you know, I think the more important stat to look at is the touchdowns. I mean, obviously that's hard to overlook, but like if you look at what Kevin White did and how dominant he was, his best season, he had 14. And Sills eclipsed that both seasons, his junior and senior year. And Kevin White was absolutely dominant. I mean, in every single way, shape or form. And Sills found a way despite being, you know, maybe a little bit skinnier, um, slower, you know, probably not jumping as high to, to still be able to beat defenses and get into the end zone regularly. Um, just really special. I mean, you know, it just kind of goes to show you, I think, you know, playing quarterback and being a smart receiver goes a long way because he kind of understood defenses a little bit more and how to run his routes and where he needs to be. Um, so, you know, a lot of credit to him, um, for memorable moment. What I had was, um, it was one of those fade routes, but it was, it, it, I think it was more of kind of like a broken play fade route. Will Greer kind of threw the ball, the back of the end zone and um, David Sills reached out of the back of the end zone while falling down in the air and gets a toe down while he's 
going out of the back of the end zone. And it was just a crazy catch because he's laid out vertically, somehow gets his toe back in while catching the ball um, for a touchdown. And it just kind of goes to show you that it seemed like whenever he was in the end zone, um, he was going to do everything in his power to come down with that ball. I mean, he just loves scoring touchdowns and he was elite at it. Yeah, 100%. He just had a knack for it. Like, you know, like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, but yeah, shout out to David Sills coming in at number 10. We got Bruce Irvin after attending a couple community colleges, Bruce Irvin transferred to West Virginia and played here from 2010 to 2011. In that brief time, Bruce tallied 22 and a half sacks, which is the fourth most in school history and 30 tackles for a loss, which is ranked 12th. His 14 sacks during his junior year were the second most in the nation and made him an immediate fan favorite in Morgantown. Bruce earned second team all Big East that year, and his 14 sacks were the third most at West Virginia in a single season. These numbers helped Bruce get drafted 15th overall by the Seattle Seahawks, and he has had a you know pretty nice NFL career so far. So big shout out to Mountaineer great Bruce Irvin. Yeah, and he was a freak athlete. I mean, at the combine, he ran a 4.5, and he was probably about, I think he was 6.3, about 250. Um, and if you watch, you know, watched him play, I mean, if offensive tackles couldn't get back quick enough, he would beat them with speed. If they could get back quick enough, he would bull rush them with power. Um, he was just a freak. And, you know, he, he was one of those really special players that, you know, I feel like really – struck fears in the hearts of offenses and offensive lines because you knew he was coming and you knew what he was going to do. You knew that he was going to try to beat you. And with his combination of strength and speed and, you know, pass rush moves, he really um, showed out and played well. And, and it's translated a little bit to the NFL. He didn't really have as prolific um, of a uh, career as a sack artist as he did at WVU, but Still, he's had uh, 93 starts in 10 years, um, played in 127 games. Um, he has 52 career sacks, 315 career tackles, 64 career tackles for a loss, 120 career QB hits, and 16 career forced fumbles. And his best season actually wasn't too far off ago. Um, 2017 with the Raiders, he had four forced fumbles, eight sacks, 58 tackles and 14 tackles for a loss. So, um, you know, not too far off. And he was productive there. Eight sacks is nothing to shrug your shoulders at. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he just, he seems to have a knack for forcing fumbles as well. Uh, like you said, 16 in the NFL. And he had five in his two years at West Virginia, which is 11th best ever in school history. Um <laughs> Interesting NFL fact for Bruce Irvin, probably not one he wants to be known for, but uh, he did win a Super Bowl with Seattle, but he also lost one against the New England Patriots. And in that loss, he became the first player ever to be ejected from the Super Bowl when he threw a closed fist at Rob Gronkowski and got ejected right at the end of the game. Yeah, I, I remember that now. <laughs> I completely forgot that happened. <laughs> yeah, I did too. So I started doing some research, and then I was like, "Huh, that's a that's a stat you don't see too often." <laughs> First player ever ejected from the Super Bowl. And I, uh, uh, so I, for the memorable moment, um, I actually 
went a little bit different here. And, you know, it was more of memorable moments. Um, every After every sack, just hearing the whole stadium go, Bruce, um, I think that's the thing I'll remember most because, I mean, his sacks were, you know, he, he was really good at it. There was nothing out there where he was doing anything crazy, ripping quarterbacks' heads off or anything like that. He was just really good at getting to the quarterback. But the way the the crowd would chant his name, um, it was just fun. And it's always great to have those type of players where, you know, he, they're such fan favorites that it kind of brings everyone together. Um, people can find something to root for and celebrate regardless of what's going on in the game. Just, you know, down by 14 points, Bruce gets a sack. Bruce. Every time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that, too. And they'd put the big old shark up on the screen. Bruce Irvin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a fun player. I mean, those, those are just guys that you remember. They, they make the game fun. Absolutely. All right, guys. Coming in at number nine, we got Geno Smith. Geno Smith played quarterback at West Virginia from 2009 to 2012. When it comes to passing records, Geno Smith is at the top of every category at WVU, and it's not even close. He threw for over 11,000 yards and 98 touchdowns in his career. Geno owns the record for passing yards and touchdowns by a mile, too. I mean, the guys in second didn't even come close to breaking those. He owns the single season and single game records as well for passing yards and passing touchdowns. Um, And Geno is without a doubt the most prolific passer in West Virginia's history. And I have a feeling his career records, they'll probably stand for a while because it's not too often you get a four-year starter in college. Um, And he was a three-year starter, but he, you know, he saw a little bit of playing time his freshman year. Mm -hmm. Um, He earned second team all big East his sophomore year, first team all big East his junior year and second team all big 12, his senior year. All of these accomplishments helped Gino get drafted by the New York jets in the second round. And um, you know, he hasn't found a huge amount of success in the NFL, but he's he's still bouncing around and making a good living in the pros. So, I mean, no knock on that. It's a good way to make a living. So, big shout out to Geno Smith. Absolutely. I mean, his best year, he was a senior year. And, um, you know, his stats were just ridiculous. 4,200 passing yards. He completed 71% of his passes. And that's not too far off of his career average, career average of 67.4%. But he also had 42 touchdown passes and only six interceptions. Um, that year, he led the nation in passing touchdowns. Those 42 led the nation. Um, he's always been an accurate quarterback. He led the Big East twice in completion percentage, the Big 12 once in completion percentage. Um, he basically led the Big East in passing yards basically every year he was in there. Um, and, and to top it off, uh, like you said, all of those records that he holds, um, he is behind Pat White. When it comes to touchdowns responsible for, he is second all time there, but that's really the only thing that he is second in when it comes to what quarterbacks have done. Um, Gino was probably one of the best pure passers in WVU history. Um, and he ran that air raid offense really well under Dana Holgerson. Obviously he had some really good weapons there with Stedman Bailey and Tavon Austin amongst some others, but You know, Gino was really good at making the right read. Um, I know at the time it felt like 
you know, there are some games where he lost with some of his decision-making, but looking back at the stats, you know, it was really only, you know, maybe a game or two. Um, I think a lot of it was the defenses then where you look at the Baylor game where we had to win what 70 to 63 Um, Gino had to be perfect. And, you know, that I think it was the senior year where he went seven and six. And while that doesn't seem great, you know, those 4,200 yards, 42 touchdown passes, there's really not much more you can do as a quarterback there and only throwing six interceptions. Um, So, you know, I I think that transition from the big East to the big 12 was tough. And Gino kind of led that charge with that offense. Um, And you can't really discount that. I think he actually gets extra points for that because, you know, he, that's a tough transition, you know, going from being a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond is a tough challenge for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, he kind of set the standard for all Dana Holgerson quarterbacks after that. I mean, after that, we had Skylar Howard, Will Greer, Clint Trickett, who was, you know, a very serviceable quarterback when he was there. And, you know, that all started with Geno really lighting up the scoreboard and bringing in the talent, setting the standard. So credit to him for that. Um, He's number one in total offensive yards in a career at WVU. And you mentioned how he's second to Pat White in total touchdowns. It's only by one. Only by one touchdown is he in second. So it's just crazy. He nearly has every single record when it comes to the quarterback position. Um, And, of course, you mentioned it, the Baylor game, where he threw for 656 yards and eight touchdowns. I mean, I, I can't ever see those stats being broken, um, at least not anytime soon. It's just insane. And, um, yeah, I'm a big Geno Smith fan. Like I said, I, I was hoping it would translate more to the NFL. He had moments here and there, but for the most part, um, you know, he hasn't really found the success that I'm sure a lot of people were thinking he would. But, um you know, he is a very serviceable backup and he, he always finds a job. So coaches are seeing something they like. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, it's always tough uh, being a quarterback, especially when you start out with the Jets. And that's not the slander of the Jets. I think Jets fans would even say that it's a tough job um, with the lack of talent that's there. Um, but like you said, he's bounced around a lot. And, you know, kind of the one fun fact that I have, I don't know how fun it is, Um is that he was the backup quarterback for the Giants. And whenever the Giants decided to bench Eli Manning and end his Ironman streak, it was Geno who started and ended that Ironman streak of Eli Manning. So very interesting fun fact there. Yeah. Unfortunately for Geno, that's probably not one you want to be remembered for. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, my memorable moment, I think there's a lot that happened in the Dana era that, you can talk about, but my favorite was, I think it was, was his first career start against Marshall leading that comeback drive as a true Mm -hmm. sophomore first start. I think we were on the road. Um, I figure, I forget what we were down by exactly, but he led a pretty decent comeback. I want to say we were down 17 or something. And the poise that he showed as such a young quarterback, I think, you know, I remember I was living in Morgantown at the time when that game was going on and I'm like, man, this is going to be a long season. Like, we can't lose the Marshall. And then the poise that he showed leading us to that comeback really kind of changed my perspective of the way the season was going to be and what Gino was going to be. Cause you know, when you have a new quarterback in there, it's first impressions and you know, at the beginning of the game, the first impression wasn't great, but he finished off. He showed composure and 
but poise and composure and leadership. And that says a lot for someone who's that young leading a team. Yeah, 100%. I remember that game well. And uh, the thing I remember about the drive that led to the tie to get to overtime is he never forced anything. Um, you know, if Marshall gave him an eight yard dump, he took it. He wasn't trying to get it all in one or two plays, which like you said, for a young kid, I mean, that, that does take a lot of maturity and, uh, and leadership. So good on him. And, uh, it led to great things in West Virginia history. Absolutely. Definitely one of the all time greats. All right. So, um, coming in at number eight, we got Steve Slayton. Steve Slayton played running back at West Virginia from 2005 to 2007. And, you know, we have not seen running back numbers like this since he's left Morgantown. Slayton put up nearly 4,000 rushing yards and over 800 receiving yards and 55 total touchdowns in just three seasons. He ranks fifth in rushing yards and first in rushing touchdowns for a career. And his 2006 season ranks first in rushing yards with 1,744 and second in rushing touchdowns with 18 for a single season. And, uh, you know, if he would have returned for his senior year, there's a good chance he would own just about every rushing record at West Virginia. So all of those numbers earned Slayton a lengthy amount of awards. He was the Big East Rookie of the Year and second team All-Big East his freshman year. He was first team All-Big East and first team All-American and a fourth place finish in the Heisman his sophomore year. Steve Slayton was taken by the Texas Houston Texans, sorry, in the third round of the NFL draft, and he broke the Texans' single-season rushing record in his rookie year. The record has since been broken by Arian Foster, but wow, in your rookie year, you come in and just set set the world on fire like that. Um, Unfortunately, that was Slayton's peak, though, in the pros. Um, You know, that doesn't diminish all of his amazing accomplishments throughout his career, though. So big shout-out to Steve Slayton. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the one stat that I thought was insane was, He was a three-year starter. Those three years, he ran for over 1,000 yards and 15 touchdowns in each of those three seasons. Uh, Just absolutely insane. And I I can't imagine that we'll have another running back who does that because 1,000 yards is doable, but 15 touchdowns three years in a row, that's hard. That's really, really hard. Um, And that sophomore year, like you said, was special too with the 1,700 yards, 16 rushing touchdowns. He was third nationally in rushing yards. Eighth most touchdowns nationally, um, most scrimmage yards yards in a season in WVU history, which has since been surpassed. Um, he has the he has he is tenth for the most touchdowns responsible for, and that's a quarterback, and that's a list that is primarily dominated by quarterbacks, um, which is insane to me that he's tenth on that list. Uh, fourth and fourth most in all-purpose yardage in WVU history. Um, he has the second and fourth best single season rushing touchdown seasons. Um, and, you know, the accolades, you know, we, we we mentioned some of them, but he was also the Sugar Bowl MVP, which I believe that was his freshman year. He was a Doak Walker finalist, and that is the award for best running back. Um, he was a semifinalist for the Maxwell Award, which is a award for the best overall college football player or offensive 
football player, similar to the Heisman, but focused mostly on offense. Um, and just absolutely insane, you know. I mean, I, I he didn't. And another thing is to mention too is that his freshman year he didn't even start the season as the starter. Uh, there was a few games where he wasn't playing, and then I think it was the Virginia Tech game where um, he came out in the second half, earned the job, started the next week against Rutgers, and then the following week against Louisville is where he kind of blew up. Um, the first the two games before that were pretty good, but um, you know my memorable moment is that Louisville game where he came out. WV was down at halftime by 17 and he went off for 188 yards rushing and five rushing TDs. And it was only his second career start. Um, absolutely insane. Um, and you can imagine being a fan back then, if you're younger and, you know, didn't get to experience it, you know, the, the feeling of how special it is to watch someone like that break out and what's to come. Yeah, 100%. That, for, you know, personally, that is my favorite game of all time was that Louisville game because I I just remember being there and so many fans left right before the comeback. And I just remember, you know, feeling so special that we stayed and, and got to see that because they were down by 17 with like seven minutes left when that comeback happened. And, and then, of course, it went into several overtimes. It was just a special game. And yeah, I mean, Steve Slayton had six touchdowns. That is insane. Um, but, you know, I, I was thinking about this while we were researching his stats. I mean, all the amazing running backs in West Virginia history, Avon Covern, uh, Amos Zareway, and Steve Slayton is arguably right up there. And he could be the best running back to ever play at West Virginia which is insane to think about when you think about the rich history of all the successful backs we've had. Um, without a doubt, he is in the conversation for the best ever. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the one thing that kind of hurt him was that wrist injury. And I think that's kind of what derailed his NFL career too. Um, and then, you know, that junior year, he had a drop off in production. I know he wasn't really being used as much. He was out um, some games because of that wrist injury and that was helping that was hurting him. He was fumbling and things like that too. And I know he had a fumbling issue in Houston a little bit. Um, And, you know, back then I think we didn't really take it as seriously because we're just, it's just like a wrist injury, but obviously it was something that was bad enough to really kind of throw everything out of whack. And, you know, it's kind of sad that we're, you know, so many of these all time great players that we've talked about on this list, you know, who've made it to the NFL um, have had their careers, derailed by injuries i mean you know kevin white um is obviously the the person who's there right up at the top but you know steve slayton suffered from that too um geno smith even had that broken jaw early in his career which you know he had to sit out and miss time and ended up losing his starting job um you know and so many other people i can't even think of on the list but um yeah it's just crazy and you know if you look at the guys who has stayed healthy healthy like the you know, Russell Douglas is, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well. Mark Lewinsky stayed pretty healthy. He's doing well. Um, Quentin Spain, he's doing pretty well. So um, I guess the key to success, if you're a Mountaineer player is somehow, some way, you know, get a lucky rabbit's foot, rub it and say, please don't get hurt because, you know, that that seems like it's a 50, 50 draw on whether if you're a West Virginia alumni, if you're going to get hurt and it's going to derail your NFL career or not. Yeah. 100%. As they say, the best ability is availability. So, um, yeah, 
Yeah, it's unfortunate to see, but um, luckily now players are getting some money for it, and so they're giving up their bodies for us to to entertain us during college. At least they're getting you know some compensation for it. Um, but yeah, that's all I got on Steve Slayton. You got anything else? Uh, one final point is that uh, Steve Slayton is now, after uh, he retired from the NFL, uh, he went to culinary school, and he is now a private chef. Oh, there you go. That's awesome. Yeah. Make a good living doing that. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for us, guys. So, uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. Once again, please reach out to us. We we love the feedback. And, Brandon, you got anything else for us? Yeah. So, uh, make sure you guys tune in next week. Um, we're going to do our final seven. And, you know, the, way we, the reason we broke it out is because, you know, I think there's, you know, kind of a, a tier where – these top seven players that we're going to talk about are among the best players in their position, um, not only during the 21st century, but of all time. And, uh, you know, make sure you tune in to hear a lot of good stories, um, reminisce about some of the great performances they've had, the great seasons they've had, and the great careers they've had. Because of these seven players, I mean, all seven seven of them are definitely up there as my favorite players because they were just so fun to watch. And, you know, you know when you're watching something special, um, whenever it's happening, but whenever it's gone, you know, it makes you reminisce about it even more because the the special the specialness, if that's a word, of these next seven players will really, I mean, it, it it's gonna be hard to ever find a player like that ever again. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. So that is it for us guys. We will catch you guys next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.